Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. There's nothing like a fresh cup of coffee. The aroma is a universal welcoming signal of a fresh start. Usually, it's the best part of waking up. But are there any benefits to a cup of joe? Well, the verdict is still out. The only thing science seems to agree on is that there is no consensus. On this week's show, we're going to explore one of the reasons coffee continues to be a scientific enigma. Genetics. We're going to find out how our DNA can determine whether we like Java and how our genetic code may determine how the dark stuff affects our health. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn how genetics may save coffee from a rather nasty worldwide disease. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to wake you up with a unique look at one of the world's most familiar drinks. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. So you say life isn't really going your way. You're not feeling the groove and you just want to hide away. You're trying your best, but you just can't beat the grind. You feel like you're falling further and further behind. But don't worry, there's always one thing that will pick you up. All you need is something you can count on, and we're not talking about friends. It's coffee in your cup. Although Ross, Rachel, Monica, Chandler, Phoebe, and... How are you doing? Joey made drinking massive cups of coffee at the Central Perk a popular way to get together with friends. Coffee has been a beloved beverage for centuries. In the Middle Ages, it was used to welcome guests to establishments and homes and was served as an accompaniment to meetings and negotiations. When you think about it, nothing much has changed in that context over the years. And that's not the only aspect of coffee that has stayed constant over time. The debate over whether the percolated drink has any health benefits has also raged on. It seems no one can agree, and to be honest, there hasn't been much help from the scientific community. If you happen to look at the various clinical trials that have happened just in the last six years, you'll find a number of divisive conclusions. Back in 2013, a study of some 44,000 people revealed drinking more than four cups of coffee per day increased the chances of death by 56%. Wow. Now compare that to a study in 2017 that looked at a variety of clinical trials and found that three to four cups a day appeared to help reduce the chances of cancer, although it could increase the risk of bone fracture and pregnancy loss in women. And then there was last year, a massive study of half a million Britons concluded drinking a whopping six to eight cups of coffee could reduce your chances of death by about 16%. It doesn't make sense, does it? Researchers have been trying to figure out the reason behind these differences. 
They've looked at the designs of the trials, the way the data was inputted, and even whether the process of analyzing the information had flaws. And it turns out, the answer is none of the above. But there may be a solution. It's just that you have to look at something completely different. You have to look at genetics. Inside each and every one of us is the code to life itself. Deoxyribonucleic acid, better known as DNA. In every one of our cells, there are some 6 billion individual molecules known as nucleotides. You've probably heard of them. Adenine, A. Thymine, T. Cytosine, C. Guanine, G. These nucleotides link up to form long strands and act as a base for the formation of some 20,000 proteins in your body. Each of us has a unique DNA code, and many of the proteins vary in the way they look and function due to changes in those genetic sequences. We call them polymorphisms. Here's where it gets awesome. We already know which proteins react to the presence of coffee and many of its chemicals, such as caffeine. These proteins have names such as aryl hydrocarbon receptor, cytochrome P50, oxidoreductase, and N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor. If a person has a polymorphism in one of these genes, the reaction to caffeine will be different. Now, sometimes the effect is minimal, but in others, it could have an effect on your long-term health. Trying to figure out how polymorphisms change the way we react to chemicals is a huge branch of science these days. And my first guest happens to be looking at how our individual nature affects our reaction to coffee's constituents. Now, she has looked at a variety of diseases such as cancer and heart health. However, she recently published a fascinating paper on how polymorphisms affect the taste of coffee. It all has to do with these variations in a protein found on the tongue known as taste receptor 2, member 38. I know, it's a long name. But its function is fascinating, and it reveals how genetics alter our perception of the world around us. Her name is Dr. Marilyn Cornelis, and she is an assistant professor of preventative medicine at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. So how does our body determine how coffee tastes? Well, it's actually based on um, a huge system that we have. Um, we call it the taste system, you could say. But generally it comes down to these what we call taste receptors that are um, present on your tongue, but also actually they're expressed throughout the body, but their presence on the tongue actually contributes to our perception of coffee, and um, those can actually vary between individuals. So if we have polymorphisms in these taste receptors, that's theoretically going to mean that we're going to taste coffee differently. But could that actually affect how much we drink? Like, does it affect our coffee consumption? Yes, it does. Actually, because these taste receptors are kind of very on your tongue and they're also specific to different foods, they don't only impact our coffee consumption behavior, but they actually impact um, what we eat in general and how much or whether we dislike or like something. And those are major predictors for our consumption behaviors. Um, there's one taste receptor in particular that, that has a um, polymorphism that does impact our perception of um, one constituent of coffee, which many of us are familiar with, and that's caffeine. 
caffeine is actually a very bitter chemical. People don't generally taste caffeine on its own because it's actually like a kind of a white powder, but it's actually naturally a very, um, very bitter substance. And we find that, um, that there are certain taste receptors that allow you to perceive caffeine differently based on their, their genetic makeup between individuals. We know that there are, you know, a number of different genes associated with the way that we react to coffee, not just in terms of taste, like you said, but also in terms of health. Is that reaction on our taste having an effect on our health? Or are there other genes that are involved in how caffeine and, and other components of coffee affect our health? Uh, yes, actually, that's an area um, that I've had a lot of experience with. Uh, actually, it began at University of Toronto, which where I completed my PhD, looking at genetic variation in caffeine metabolism and how that variation impacts the relationship between coffee consumption and heart disease. Now, one gene I was especially interested in was one that we call cytochrome P451A2 or CYP1A2. And it's actually responsible for about 95% of caffeine metabolism. And although I've gone on to study this particular gene and other genes involved in the system of caffeine metabolism through my postdoc in Boston and further down the, down the road of my career, it's really come down to this one particular gene, which is CYP1A2. And what's interesting is that through my research, we've shown that this gene and other genes that are involved in caffeine metabolism, that the genetic variants in these genes also predict our coffee consumption behavior. Cool. Generally, what we find is that genetic variants that are related to increased caffeine metabolism also equate with higher caffeine consumption. So generally what we're showing here is that people who are, based on their genetics, metabolizing caffeine quickly, they're naturally consuming more. Now, like theoretically, you're thinking that that's, that's not rocket science. That makes total sense. But um, looking at just our genetics and aside from logic, you could say, that's exactly what we see with the genetic data. This actually brings up a, an interesting concept. I've heard in, in some of the literature that you could have a polymorphism in some of the way that you react to alcohol, and that may have an effect on whether or not someone becomes uh, an alcoholic. Do you think that we could actually be looking at the same thing when it comes to caffeine based on what you just found? Because if you're not getting the caffeine because you have that addiction, maybe you might be suffering from other psychological or other problems when you're trying to give it up. Right, and actually when you describe the, um, the genetics and alcohol consumption, I'd say it's, it's very much the same. Obviously, coffee or caffeine and alcohol are very different and there's you know you could be diagnosed alcoholic but we're we're not sure if that can you know be extrapolated to um being a being a caffeine addict there's still controversy concerning that and so obviously it could be a genetic thing too which is what some of my research has shown but yeah this would definitely impact health i believe and your propensity to you know consume caffeine and how difficult it might be for you to cut back especially for those who are consuming, who have been used to be consuming a lot of caffeine, that um, they might just have a genetic predisposition to consume it. It could be difficult to, to cut back. But if these, um, if the variants that are contributing to caffeine consumption are actually related to caffeine metabolism, that might actually be somewhat protective. And this kind of goes back again to my research from, from earlier, showing that although for some individuals, coffee might be 
associated with increased risk of heart disease. And this is older literature based on a a different population. But we found that um, individuals who will have genetic variants that are related to increased caffeine metabolism, basically they're consuming coffee, but metabolizing caffeine quickly, they're not at increased risk. So they're actually getting rid of caffeine from their system. And what's interesting is we know that caffeine is only one component of coffee. It has other other constituents in coffee that might be beneficial. And that's where it kind of goes back to some of the literature showing that coffee is beneficial. One particular disease that coffee has been consistently shown to reduce risk is diabetes. And it's unlikely due to caffeine, but more likely due to the polyphenols that are found in coffee. And so what's interesting is that caffeine and the acute effects of caffeine might have an adverse effect, let's say, on blood pressure. But for individuals who have genetic variants that can quickly metabolize caffeine, they might actually benefit more from the other constituents of coffee. So it's kind of kind of interesting how individual variation in caffeine metabolism really does change our overall physiological response to coffee or other dietary forms of caffeine. When we start looking at all these clinical studies that are giving us all sorts of different types of recommendations as to what we might be drinking, et cetera, et cetera, what do you recommend to people who are sort of looking at this and seeing the headlines in the media and they're wondering, you know, well, maybe if I drink four cups of coffee, then I'm really putting myself at risk. Uh, But if I drink six or eight cups of coffee, then I'm going to be much better. Is it really something that people should be paying attention to? Um, Or maybe what they should do is just go and get themselves one of those genetic tests uh, and and find out what their polymorphisms are so they just know how they're going to react to coffee. I wouldn't recommend going out to get uh, genetic profiling done, particularly for your coffee consumption habits. Even for some of my literature, it shows you that we're naturally titrating our levels to kind of go along with our genetic metabolism of caffeine. So it's kind of additional information. But if we look at the Canadian guidelines for coffee, I think Canada is actually kind of cool because they were the first ones to actually implement guidelines pertaining to to caffeine at least. I think they said a maximum of 400 milligrams per day, which is equivalent to around four cups of coffee per day. And only in 2015 did the U.S. dietary guidelines start thinking about coffee as well. And for the USA dietary guidelines, they kind of looked at it a different perspective. They actually looked at more of the beneficial effects that coffee has been shown to, at least based on some of the literature. And their recommendation is that don't don't consume any more than five cups of coffee per day or up to five cups of coffee per day is, is safe, if not potentially beneficial. And unfortunately, some people are interpreting that slightly different in that, oh, I should be increasing my coffee consumption. But no, it's actually saying that if you're already consuming that amount, There's no need for you to cut back thinking that you're going to be more healthy. If you're already consuming that, it's possible, very, very likely that you can tolerate that amount and that cutting back isn't probably a key priority. We know that obviously coffee is just one lifestyle factor contributing to various others that contribute to um, a certain disease outcome. And so I don't think focusing in on cutting back on coffee to reduce risk is really a a key priority at this time. When it comes to the taste of coffee, our own personal genetics can influence how we perceive the flavor. However, the coffee itself will also have its own individual attributes, depending on the region where it was grown. Now, factors such as the climate, the soil, and the farming conditions all play a role. But when it comes to the genetics, we need to look at another player in the coffee manufacturing process. 
we need to give thought to the microbes. Before those brown coffee beans make it to your store, they are hidden deep inside a round fruit known as a coffee cherry. The fruit has a tough outer skin that is quite bitter and several softer inner layers, known as the pulp, which slowly get softer as you approach the bean, which, by the way, is green. Now, after the cherry is harvested, the bean needs to be removed from the skin and the pulp. This can be done either by drying the fruit in the sun, which can take weeks, or in water, which only takes a few days. In both cases, the fruit is exposed to a variety of different microbes, including bacteria and yeasts. Now, they just love the different layers of the fruit, and they break them down with enzymes using the end products as their food. In the process, the yeast and bacteria form waste products that they send into the environment. And many of these chemicals end up either on or in the bean matrix. So when the beans are finally roasted to make them that brown color we all know, many of those molecules become integrated within the bean and can only be released upon exposure to very hot water. When you brew your coffee, those chemicals are released and can provide an aroma and taste that is unique to that particular bean. The use of fermentation to add flavor to coffee has gained quite a bit of attention as of late, and some companies are already promising to provide in-house fermented beans to ensure a consistent source of a particular flavor. But how to achieve this requires an understanding of the microbes themselves and also what they produce to keep those flavors intact. And the only way to do that is to take a closer look at the genetics. And that is exactly what my next guest has done. Her name is Dr. Amy Dudley, and she is a genetics guru at the Pacific Northwest Research Institute in Seattle, Washington. In 2016, she and her team performed a genetic analysis of the different types of yeast used in coffee fermentation from all over the world. Her results not only offer insight into why our coffee tastes a certain way, but also how these flavors emerged over time. So I'm a microbiologist by trade, although my research usually focuses on trying to kill pathogens for food and environmental safety. From your perspective, on the other side of the coin, if you will, what is it about those useful types of uh, microbes that make them so beneficial to our overall gastronomic experience? Yeah, so microbes are essential for the production of many of the foods and beverages that we all enjoy. And I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners know baker's yeast, uh, which is the organism that my lab studies, is used to make bread and wine and beer. But most people don't appreciate the extent to which microbes themselves can affect the color, aroma, or flavor of some of our favorite foods and beverages. For example, many people think that the only major role that yeast plays in wine fermentation is to convert sugar to alcohol. And if that was true, the wine would just be low-sugar grape juice with some added ethanol. But in fact, many of the aromatic compounds that make wine taste and smell pleasant to humans aren't present in the grapes at all. They're actually produced by the yeast during fermentation. In your 2016 study, one of the things that I found fascinating was that not only was there this huge diversity, which you might expect because you're collecting strains from all over the world, but the ones that were associated with coffee seem to have a greater diversity, if you will, than, say, ones that are made for, you know, wine or other 
alcoholic beverages. How do you think this diversity of strains happened? Like, is this a historical or did humans have something to do with it? You're right that the wine strains are all very similar to each other. And people think the reason for that is that winemaking was actually perfected really early in human history before kind of large-scale human migrations. And then when humans did start to migrate around the world, they not only brought with them the grapes that were used in winemaking, but also the vessels and the remnants of previously successful fermentations that they used as starter cultures for new wines. And these are the kinds of ways in which humans can domesticate microbes in order to make better and better products, right? And so as a result, all the yeast that you find in wine from France or Australia or California or right here in Washington State are incredibly similar to each other. But humans also moved coffee trees around the world. So we found that yeast strains associated with coffee are very region-specific. That is, the DNA sequences of the yeast from Colombian coffee beans are very similar to each other, but very different from the yeast strains that are associated with Yemeni coffee beans, for example. Given that coffee isn't grown near any of these kind of native populations, the most likely explanation is that these wild yeast strains that we're finding in coffee fermentations were transported by human activity or other agents. But these migration events were separate from the transport of the trees themselves. Could we have seen or did we see, based on your research, new strains develop? And if those new strains came about, did they also help to change the taste of our coffee? What's clear from our research is that there are large differences in the microbes that are associated with that coffee um, and that they're different depending on where that coffee is actually grown around the world. And we currently don't know how much of that terroir, how much of that region-specific taste, flavor, aroma, or other properties are associated with those fermentation steps and how much of that actually might be conferred not by the plants but by the microbes themselves. We're already hearing about companies that are looking to have yeasts in-house to do these fermentations to improve flavors, uh, much like we have with wines and beers. And if we don't really already know what's being imparted, if you will, onto the flavor, does that necessarily mean that this type of direction is more about you spending more money than really getting something like a new flavor? Should we wait? before we start using genetics as a means to be able to buy coffee? It's, it's certainly possible that incubating processed green coffee beans with specific strains or even other microbes, it could improve the coffee flavor. Um, and we actually tried something like this in my lab just for fun once. Um, so we, uh, we incubated the same batch of green coffee beans with different strains of yeast. And in fact, some of those uh, fermentations smelled quite floral. Some of them had an essence of chocolate, and some of them smelled like old gym socks. Um, <laughs> oh my! So, it's, <laughs> so it's it's certainly true that that can uh, that that can have an effect. But the truth is that unlike wine or cacao fermentations, um, scientists really have, as you said, very little information about what goes into coffee fermentations, what organisms are in there, what are they producing and consuming, and what's the effect on the coffee, of course. So in my opinion, understanding the microbes responsible for coffee fermentations could have some pretty big positive impacts in several areas, 
One of them is the reduction of product loss. So I've been told by coffee experts that in many places, fermentations fail quite frequently. And when they do, the coffee's ruined. So that certainly suggests that fermentation is pretty important for the process. But when these fermentations fail, it's a huge cost to the farmers, most of whom barely break even. So there's, there's a potential uh, really positive economic impact of understanding uh, these fermentations and how to make them happen better. Another issue is that the global population of the Arabica species of coffee trees, which is the one that the industry relies on for its high-end product, really suffers from a lack of genetic diversity. And that leaves it particularly vulnerable to climate change and climate change-induced diseases and insects. And so as breeders try to diversify that population of trees and select for traits such as disease or pest resistance, for example, it's possible that at the same time when you're selecting for one thing that you actually get coffee that has different properties, right? So your disease-resistant coffee crop might actually have a different taste. Um, and so if that's the case, then more controlled fermentations with specific strains of microbes might help improve the taste or at least give you a more consistent product. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to look at how genetics might be able to help save our coffee for generations to come. You might not know it, but coffee plants have been under attack over the last few decades from a rather nasty enemy. It's known as Himalaya vastatrix. Okay, I know that sounds like one of those Harry Potter spells that everybody but Hermione would have trouble saying, but it's also known as the coffee rust fungus. And, like a bunch of Dementors on the loose, it can do some serious damage to crops, and already has in Central and South America. And now, there are fears it may affect crops all over the world. Our guest teacher is Dr. John Vandermeer. He's a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Michigan and has been studying how we can use genetics and ecology to prevent future losses. He joins me from Puerto Rico, where he is currently investigating the environmental impacts of last year's hurricanes. So what does coffee rust do to the coffee plant and, and how does this fungus spread? Okay, what it does to the coffee plant is it spreads across a leaf and then the leaf dries out and falls off the plant. And then it sends spores to other leaves and spreads across the plant and the plant, the leaf dries off, dries out and falls off the plant. And eventually the plant gets completely defoliated if it's a really bad, it's a really bad year. The way it spreads, it spreads in a variety of different ways. The main way that it's been spreading in Central America is through what we call propagule rain. That is, you have huge areas where there's a lot of rust, and so a lot of spores, fungal spores, are produced, and they get sucked up into the upper atmosphere, and they spread very long distances, and then they sort of fall out almost as if they were rain. Do you see this uh, as potentially spreading across the world in the same way that we've seen in Central and South America? Well, we already know that it did spread across the world. I mean... It, it arrived in the Americas somehow or another, and we don't think it arrived from human transport. We think it arrived through natural means. Uh, some people have suggested that there was a big epidemic in, in Angola, and from Angola it spread to the, uh, to the first to the Caribbean and then to the Central American mainland. Uh, it, 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 it travels long, long distances by, by spores up in the upper atmosphere. So uh, it's, it's kind of already been a global phenomenon, and I don't expect it to stop, to tell you the truth. 
Do you think that there's a way that we'll be able to genetically alter the coffee plants so that they can resist the coffee rust fungus? Well, that's what people have been trying to do for quite some time now, uh, through just classic breeding. And there's also programs for trying to engineer particular genetic constructs. Um, I don't think that those latter constructs have been all that successful, at least so far. It's not clear what the target should be, and I think that's a real problem. Uh, if you could really identify... Uh, some targets uh, that might be good. There, there was a there was a while back where I think there were I think they had nine genes that they identified with potential resistance factors, uh, but I'm not sure that that has panned out all that well because you know the rust evolves very quickly. So the genetic constructs that they're using right now are from classical breeding more than anything else, and they uh, they they come from uh, this one main variety that's called Cathy Moore. And that it really originates from a natural hybrid that was discovered in East Timor, uh, called the hybrid of East Timor, as a matter of fact. And uh, <laughs> a lot of places, especially in Colombia, that they've been they've been producing varieties that have been relatively successful, at least for a short period of time. So, <clears throat> I know the catimores that they planted on the farm that we one of the farms that we work on in in, in Chiapas, Mexico, uh, they were really quite quite resistant to the rust for three to four years. And then we just started noticing, just as last year, we started noticing that, that the rust is starting to attack them. I mean, the rust really does evolve. Do you think it would be possible then to be able to use genetics to develop uh, insecticides or, or fungicides? Or do you think that there might be a better way where we actually use natural predators against this particular fungus to be able to control it? Uh, yes, I do. And I think there's strong evidence for that. We work on the coffee rust in two different places, on one in Puerto Rico, the other in southern Mexico. Southern Mexico, it's still a huge problem. In Puerto Rico, it's not a problem at all. It's here, and people don't like it. It's a bother, but it's never really been an outbreak problem. Now, when you, it, it's just amazing when you walk on a farm in Puerto Rico, you see the rust, but every time you see the rust, you see four other things. You see, first of all, there's a white fungus. It's called Lacanicillium lacanii, the white halo fungus. And virtually every rust lesion has white fungus on top of it. That's a mycoparasite that attacks it. Attacks it constantly wherever it goes. There's also a small fly larva called mycodiplosis, which eats it as a larva. And these mycodiplosis are all over the place in Puerto Rico. There's also a snail in Puerto Rico that eats it. And there's a, a, a several species of mites that eat the coffee rust. And so the coffee rust, yes, it's here, and it's, in a sense, it's prospering, but it's prospering as a rare species because it has all these predators that are attacking it. Uh, in, 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 in Mexico, you have basically the same predators, but for some reason, they no, never get up to the levels that they get here in Puerto Rico. We're not sure why that's the case, but that's exactly what we're studying. We're trying to figure out why in Mexico the natural enemies are the things that are controlled, where in Puerto Rico, it's the coffee rust that's controlled. When I reached out to you, you told me right off the bat, you are not a geneticist. You really are an ecologist. And, and from what I'm hearing, it really does sound like while we can use genetics as a tool, the reality is, is we have to understand the ecology first before we start playing around and trying to solve this problem. Yes, you're correct. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has awakened an interest in coffee, even if your genetics don't like the taste. 
We here at the show want to thank everyone who's been listening. Your support is simply overwhelming. And thanks to you, we've been nominated for Canadian Podcast Award for Science and Medicine series. We'll put a link in the show notes, so if you happen to be a podcaster, please vote for us. Now, if you happen to have any questions or just want to make a comment on the show, you can always reach out to me on Twitter, at JATetro. And if you have an idea that's longer than 280 characters and including an idea for the show, you can always email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help us to get more people to find us. Until next week, have a great time, enjoy that caffeine rush, and as always, make sure to show them some sass. 